Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on October 7, 2016. Shannon from the Walt Branch Library discusses a variety of nonfiction right. books. Better get started or else we'll just chatty Kathy the whole way through. I'm Shannon. <laughs> I work at Walt. I just brought books that I've been reading. So if you have not been to one of my book talks before, I will tell you how I honestly feel about it. If I hate it, I will tell you that. Now, that might not be how you feel about the book, and you most definitely can read it and tell me that you thought it was great, but that's how I like to run a book talk, so. Okay, first one, Do No Harm. I don't know, I think I brought this one before, but I couldn't remember, so I brought it again because it was good. It's actually about a brain surgeon in England. In each section, he starts off with a different condition, and then he kind of goes through a little bit of a case study, but then he also dives into how he got into brain surgery, um, the patients he's seen, the advances he's made, the cases he's failed at, and he talks a lot about how brain surgery has changed in the last 30 years, how it went from being like a creepy kind of horror movie with a bald person in a very long coat sitting in a you know an immovable chair to a surgery that has lots of people and it's less invasive and things like that his style is rather crass so he's very blunt in the way he talks and it is very unfeeling I mean he he shows that he has sympathy for his patients like he talks about one place he um has always liked to uh, brush the women's hair because it helps get all the bone fragments out and he thinks that a lot of them like it because otherwise you know imagine doing this the first time and running across skull parts in your hair that might be a little unnerving so he talks about that there is there is blood there's all that stuff so if it makes you queasy you may not want to read it but it's not overly graphic i wouldn't say it's like so blood and guts that you guys would be unnerved i like the way he talks about like in england their medical system is different so he gives the reader a good breakdown of how it works there with everyone going to a general hospital and if you have private insurance because in the book he breaks his leg and has to go to a hospital and his big thing is the when he walks in he is always like i have private insurance i have private insurance so that they move him to a better hospital but it's nice because i was very unaware of how their system worked so as a reader i'm glad that he didn't just jump in and assume that we would all know what he's talking about he also talks about in the last part of the book he goes to the ukraine as part of like a fellowship to start to help ukraine doctors deal with some of the problems that they're having and it's a big culture shock because you know you go from first world medicine to third world or no world medicine and the stuff that he talks about helping with the um, patients they see the just the surgery room gave me the heebie-jeebies enough I like the way he writes it's very clean and like I said it's very blunt so he He talks about he destroyed a teacher's brain to the point where the man cannot function anymore. 
and he's very open about it. He said he screwed up and, you know, he realized an important lesson. But I'm like, geez, there's this poor man that can never walk or talk or function anymore. But he went to, he goes to all these medical, you know how they go to conferences and some prominent doctor will show slides of the before and after. And he said that this is where he learned the important, a good enough is sometimes the best. You don't need to get all of it because what happened with the teacher was he got most of the tumor, realized there was some left in there and decided to go for it all and managed to damage something at that point. And if he had just left the little that was in there, the teacher would have probably still be functioning today. Yes, but if he had, had the surgery, he wouldn't be... Well, what, he what he was saying was like he took he took like ninety nine percent of the tumor out. Yeah, but I'm saying if the teacher had not had the surgery oh, to yeah, begin yeah. with, he would not have functioned either. So. Yes, and he talks a lot about how nobody reads um, disclaimers; they just all sign them. Yeah. Oh. You have no idea what you just signed, but so. nobody 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 wants to know the odds. Nobody wants to know what will happen. Which they just is now in America why they have verbally tell you mm -hmm. what's in that disclaimer because mm -hmm. well, nobody yeah. reads it. I have a friend who had brain surgery and they left part of the tumor because of that very thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean it is a lot, a lot of, a lot of advancements. I think I like reading medical books because that's where you see. I mean, yeah, it's great. I got a phone and I can play games on it, but like where technology has really jumped the bounds and what it can do. Mm -hmm. That's where you really see, I mean, they, he talks about how they used to have to cut the whole skull open. Mm -hmm. Now they just make a little incision, and with a, a mm -hmm. camera and a little drill, they can go in. I have a friend who's a doctor. He doesn't tell you percentages because he has discovered over the years that if he tells you percentages of success and everything, it totally affects the outcome the person's recovery because you've almost all directed them mm -hmm. to the point that mm -hmm. you know to a point that they believe mm -hmm. which he thinks is more important than those numbers yeah yeah and so he gets very um, tricky about that and um, I mean, you can't blame him no no, no. It an effect on no he would like the people to feed, to recover and right. The next one I brought is called the shift, and it is just that. It is one nurse, three or four patients, and 12 hours. This book all takes place in 12 hours, from the start of the nurse's shift to the end of nurse's shift. I bet that's interesting. It is very interesting. Um, Teresa is a, she's a nurse in an oncology ward in a hospital. The thing that kind of drove me nuts, because she didn't answer it until like halfway through, is she used to be a professor of literature at Tufts University and like had a job and then decided to give it all up and go back to nursing school. And I was shocked at that because why would you give up such a nice cushy job as a professor to go work 12 nurses ha nurses in hospitals have incredible long hours they work they're on call all the time. They work holidays. There is no stopping. I mean, the university closes. My dad works at the university, and it closes, what, December 12th? And he doesn't go back till. I mean, yeah. you get holiday time. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about, well, I can't go to the movies because I'm, or I can't leave this vicinity because I'm on call. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think one to the other, that's a big jump. Mm -hmm. yeah. She says that when she had her, she has a set of twins and when she had her twins 
she loved the midwife so much that she thought, you know, I've missed my calling as a nurse and gave up her job and went back to nursing school. So, like I said, this whole book takes place in the 12 hours that she's at work. And she writes so well. It's so smooth. And she she does give you the terminology that goes with each patient, but you never feel you're lost in medical jargon. She keeps it pretty simple. But it gives you a really eye-opening look as to, you know, when you're in a hospital room, you assume that your nurses are, well, they're just sitting at the computer. <laughs> you know, like, you don't put yourself in what in the world they're doing on the outside of the door or, you know, why is it taking two and a half hours for a doctor to show up? But he said he was going to be here an hour ago, you know, stuff like this. So she kind of tries to give you the what they're doing perspective. And um, she has... She has a patient, and I forget her name. What was her name? Candace. And Candace is like the patient that everyone, when they hear she's coming back onto the ward, goes, oh. <laughs> but to be fair to Candace, I kind of feel like she gets more accomplished for herself. The squeaky wheel. <laughs> because she is that big of a squeaky wheel. Like, Teresa admits that the hospital to cut down on costs has stopped cleaning the rooms as well. So Candace shows up earlier with her sister or her sister-in-law and they clean her room. And then the junk they find in there, she comes out and she's just livid. So to appease Candace, they give her a really nice, comfortable chair. And I'm like, this isn't sending the best message because pretty much what you're telling me is I need to be a really big bee to get really good, you know. Equipment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She is obnoxious and she does seem to like drive everyone crazy, but she also seems to get the help she needs. So, but then she also has another patient that needs a very, it's like a, a medicine that comes in a pump, but it's so secure that a doctor, a nurse, and the ward nurse all have to sign off on it. They all have to be present when it's started. She has to check on him. But as she's going through the day and it's broken down into hours, you can kind of feel her stress levels start to rise because I haven't checked on this person. I haven't done this paperwork. I haven't given these shots. I haven't, you know, and she starts with three patients and then gets a fourth. And as the fourth one shows up, who's not really, I mean, he needs to be checked, but the, it's the idea of another patient. And you, as an outsider, I'm like, four patients should be easy. That's when I, you know, I start the book thinking, four patients, you should be able to do this. But as the day goes on, you're like, holy moly, how does she get it done? And she talks in there about how a lot of nurses don't get meal breaks because when are they supposed to take one? But on the other side, the hospital has to show that they are giving nurses adequate time to take a meal break. So they want them to clock out. So basically they're encouraging them to clock out for half an hour work and clock back in. So there's a lot, she tries to talk about the bureaucracy of the hospital, mm -hmm. the interactions with the doctors. It's a great book. It is really, I think a good companion, especially if anyone read Being Mortal. It's a nice companion to that because it deals with nurses and not the doctors that are involved. And I think a lot of people see more nurses than they do doctors in any given time in the hospital. So I recommend this one a lot. It is written by a nurse. What's next? What's next? We're doing Valiant Ambition. This is the new book written about Benedict Arnold and George Washington. 
Now, if you've never read a Benedict Arnold book, this is an excellent one to read. And Nathaniel has written many books about the early start of the Americans. And he does a great job of researching and presenting the information. I have read three books about Benedict Arnold, so this book was nothing that I hadn't already known. But I definitely think that if you're interested in him and knowing more about the man and his relationship with George Washington, that this is a great book to read. It gives you all Benedict Arnold's background, the events in the war, his relationship with Washington, his relationship with the Continental Congress, his relationship with his wife, both wives. So, for those of you who don't know, Benedict Arnold was not the traitor he was always, he has been portrayed. He was a great general. But he was much of a more of a act now, think later kind of general, and he had a flair for the dramatic. So, he liked to do things that were probably not necessary, but in the grand storytelling of an event would sound great. Like, the example is when the British were taking over Canada, he was the last one to jump on his boat and shoot his horse and, you know, escape. Well, I didn't really need to shoot his horse, but it sounds, you know, it sounds more dramatic. Like, as the fires and the, you know, the guns were coming his way kind of stuff. So he definitely loved the flair and the dramaticism of anything. But he had a very short temper, and his ego could be bruised very, very easily. A lot of it had to do with the fact that he did not have Washington's calmness. Washington dealt with so much during the war. Not only did he deal with people who thought he was not capable of leading the army and were trying to undercut him and put somebody else in charge, uh, Lee being one of them, he also had to deal with a Congress that didn't want an army. They never well, wanted a standing army. <laughs> Try, yeah, underfunded them, undercut them, constantly were complaining that there was no need for an army. Why don't we just rely on the Minutemen? But then when it came down to it, everyone's like, well, Washington, what are you going to do? You got to fix this. We don't know what to do. So he just didn't have Washington's ability to kind of see long term and realize that in the end, it would be proven, he would be proven right. Like Benedict Arnold was very much of the moment and he wanted accolades at the moment and he wasn't getting them. He got passed over for a promotion because some bizarre rule in the Congress had that they could only have certain ranking men from so many different states. And he <laughs> had, they had already taken two from his state so he couldn't be promoted. And it took Washington stepping in and saying, you know, he really needs to be promoted, guys, for them to do it. But it was kind of one of those, it was always a slight on his feelings. He managed to tick off a lot of, of his men that worked under him. Some of them loved him and some of them hated him. And the ones that hated him really made some trouble for him. He was court-martialed twice because he asked a soldier to do something that they felt they did, shouldn't have to. And they took it to John Adams and a few of the others that were in the Congress that didn't like Benedict Arnold and kind of helped fuel their fire to... Yeah, he never felt appreciated. No, he never felt appreciated. He was also very good at making enemies. He was. Yeah. He, had a very, he had a very big personality and he was very 
dramatic and you know some some guys like that because he was in the fray a lot of i mean there were a few generals that would stand back and say you go fight over there i'm gonna stand here but he would be in the melee with them and a lot of his soldiers liked that because they felt like he was never asking them to do something he wouldn't do so he earned some soldiers respect for that um where are they getting all this new information? I mean, it's it's not really new. Years. It's I mean, not really new. No, I well, think. some of it is some like... Some of it's new interpretations. It is I don't new interpretations. Um, okay. They found... There has always been the debate of whether General Lee, who was captured and spent the winter in New York, was actually a traitor yeah. and giving information to the British. And yeah. about... 20 years ago in a library in Hampshire, they found his journals, his correspondence with people in London to confirm that in fact Lee was a traitor. And when he came back to the United, the United States side, he was reluctant to do anything. And this was always kind of the thought behind it, but they were never able to confirm it. So I wouldn't say that there's anything new in the book. I mean, it is pretty much like I said, if you've read other Benedict Arnold books, it's the same. But I feel that it's a good all-around. So if you need a good all-around, this is it. I still don't understand. It is the one thing that always bothers me. Benedict Arnold gets married to a woman who is very pro-British. Her family's all pro-British. And they make it all about, well, his, oh, you know, his wife wanted him to, to go to the British. Well, you know, Knox married a very pro-British woman too. Her father was the secretary to Howard. No, not Howard. How? So, I mean, it wasn't like this is a very, you know, and Knox stayed loyal the entire time. I mean, all of our gold is hid in Fort Knox. I mean, <laughs> so I have a problem with that sticking point because it seems like there were other men who married British women who had no problem staying to their side, but it seems like they try to help Benedict Arnold not be as bad of a guy if they put some of this blame on his wife. And while I'm not saying she is entirely blameless, I think, you know, in the end, he made his choice. Did you watch the TV? No, I never on, did. It made for good TV. I don't know how accurate. Did they, did they make sure that they put her in something very revealing the day Washington showed up? Because that seems to be in every book I read. Yeah. She was yeah. scantily well, clad as she, she was, saw George I think Washington. She was, I think she was in that most of the windy. series. Yeah. Yeah. I was just she, like. She used her sexual charms. Yeah. Freely. Uh -huh. Well, and, and here he full on, the, yeah, and he talks about all the lovely, all the lovely wives. George looked the part. He looked like a general. That's the only thing that I always find very odd, that they make a point of talking about how she had very few clothes on the day Benedict Arnold scampered off because he got found out and Washington showed up. Uh, no, but I think it was just more she was trying to delay Washington so that Benedict Arnold could get away. But it seems to be something that every author, and it just may be the fact that all of them are men, but it seems like every author has delayed on that point for a while. And I'm like, dude, I got it. Let's move on. Well, and Arnold claimed that the Continental Congress owed him yes. money, too. And, and to be the fair, they Congress did. They probably did. They owed everyone. They owed everyone. Washington never 
Yeah, no, nobody got paid. If you asked for it, you weren't getting it. But, I mean, he did He did do some backdoor dealings to try to make up for what he felt he had lost. And he was very much of wanting a social stand. He wanted, yeah, mm-hmm. he wanted a lifestyle mm-hmm. that involved money and prestige and yep. position. I think after he left and got caught, that's when it's interesting. Because a lot of people know he, he tried to give up West Point, but a lot of people don't want know what happened to him after that. And he he had the gojones to start writing Washington these letters saying, well, I had to do what I had to do. Yeah. You obviously should forgive me. And, you know, let's just bygones be bygones. And <laughs> cracks me up. I would really have loved to have been a fly on a wall and seen what Washington and what because you won't ever find it in any book because anything he would have written down Martha had destroyed when he died so there are very few personal personal um, there are a few that miss that they miss but most personal letters between him and her or him and his um, stepson were all destroyed so I would have loved to have heard that one, though. <laughs> but like I said, it's a good book. If you want to listen to it, it's also read well. I listen to it. Some books are not read well, and this one is. But it's a fast read. It's not dry, so you won't find it boring to read. The other one I read for him was Bunker Hill. I don't recommend this one because I can tell you what this book is in a couple words. A committee meeting. There you go. You're done. Because this book is all about... The founding fathers poking the bear that is Britain to see if they could get him to react so that they could stand back and go, oh, I can't believe they did that to us. <laughs> so this is all about Bunker Hill and the events leading up to Bunker Hill with the Boston Massacre involved in this. And it is all about meetings. Oh my gosh, do they ever have meetings? They have meetings and then they have meetings and then they have more meetings and then they have more. There are a lot of meetings in this book. There are a lot of meetings. The one nice thing about this book that is not in a lot of the other books is Dr. John um, Joseph Warren, 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 who is not talked a lot about in other books. He dies at Bunker Hill, and therefore his story ends there. But he is pretty much the American Revolution leading up to that point. He does everything. He is everywhere. He is always involved, whether it be at at Boston or at Bunker Hill. He is trying to get people to realize that the Americas need to get their own freedom. And so he is all over the place. And every other name that you can think of that is associated with the American Revolution talks about how Warren was their guiding light. He was the man who wanted things done the most. Like I said, this isn't as a strong a book because I think it's too narrow of a time period because it is just from the Boston Massacre to Bunker Hill, which is a very short time period. And like I said, there are a lot of meetings, and it's a lot of back and forth between should we, shouldn't we? I don't know. You know, what can Britain do? What can we do? And it's a lot of waffling. And I think, you know, to be fair, and don't lynch me for saying this, some of the founding fathers were kind of jerks. No kidding. Yeah, (laughs) they were a lot of jerks. Um, Mm -hmm. Samuel Adams is kind of one of a jerk. Mm -hmm. And the bar. 
So they there's a lot of ambition. You can see a lot of how the founding fathers had a lot of ambition. You mean they were human. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, that quartet really yeah. points that out. Yeah. yeah, that's a great book. Mm -hmm. But I, I found this book a little of a letdown because I thought Valiant Ambition was so well written. This one was a little, little dry. But, I mean, if you're interested in a good point of view about Bunker Hill and don't know much about it, it's a good book to read. But just be warned, they talk a lot about meetings and more meetings <laughs> and more meetings. Yeah. Um, the other one that I read right after Valiant Ambition was Lafayette in a Somewhat United States. <laughs> so this is about Lafayette, which is a great companion to Valiant Ambition because they do talk about Lafayette in with Benedict Arnold and how Benedict Arnold couldn't stand Lafayette. Because while Benedict Arnold was like drama and bitter, Lafayette was just like this golden boy that was so full of happiness and sunshine. <laughs> he cracks me up. For those of you who don't know, Lafayette comes from France and they talk, oh, and he becomes a general and he becomes one of Washington's closest. I would say companions just because he's so enamored with Washington. I think it's a nice ego boost sometimes when Washington's having a rough time to listen to Lafayette just sing his praise a bit. So I think Washington likes him having around. The kid is good in battle. He he has military training, which is a, something that a lot of the the American troops lack. And so, but he also brings to the Americas the fact that he comes from royalty and he is a noble. He is good <laughs> friends with the king. And so when this all starts, the king tells all the noble military men in, Brit or in France, you cannot go to war with the Americas because the Americas start sending out, if anyone wants to come and help us, come on over. Well, the British tell the French, who they have just lost to in the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, you send anyone over there and we're not going to be happy. So Lafayette is told with all the others, you cannot go over there. Well, that doesn't stop him. He hires a boat. He says he's ill, goes to bed, flees out the window with his buddies and goes hops on the boat. And then he sends everyone a letter like, sorry, I'll be back. So the king kind of like rolls his eyes and is like, well, when he comes back, he's going to be in trouble. But it's more of those, oh, silly boys will be boys kind of stuff. So he goes over to the United States and helps out. The way that Sarah writes is very snarky. So she has a lot, like she tries to give it like um, in there something, Washington, like Washington writes Lafayette a letter saying at the end of this war, we'll go go to my house and have a party. And she says something like, well, when they plan their big sleepovers. <laughs> oh. She's kind of... So her earlier books were almost written like blogs. Is it like that? No, not at all. This okay. is very congruent through... I mean, okay. she gives you a chronological order of things. But she has a, she has a sass to her. So it's yeah. not... It's not, not of the kind of more historical kind of book like that one. She is a comedy writer. And if you listen to her books, they're great because she has multiple people read them. So you get a lot of feel for the different people. Sometimes you have one, one person read it, and if they give you the same thing in all monotones, you can't tell who's talking. But her books are great to listen to. And she's funny, and she does her research well. So this is not a book that I would feel like skimps on the research, but she definitely is sassy in the way she talks about it. Is that one on audio? It is on audio, yes. 
And you will recognize if you listen to NPR, some of the people that are on NPR do voices in here. So you'll kind of recognize some of the voices. So I recommend this one. I think this was actually one of her better written ones. I was not a fan of Assassin's Vacation, but this one I liked a little better. The Road to Little Dribbling by Bill Bryson. I, I want to put this book in black and I want to cry and I didn't want to talk about it. I love Bill Bryson. I have loved everything he has done. I have read every one of his books. This is a horrible book, which is so sad because I love all of his other stuff. The idea of this book is that he is going to go back. He wrote a book 35 years ago called Notes from a Small Island. And it's all about when he first shows up in England in 1975. He's going to start as, uh, start as an editor at the paper. So the idea for this book is, is he's going to go to visit all the little towns he went to in that book. Well, if you haven't read that book, don't worry about it because that book is not even referenced in this book beyond the first few pages. He says all of this about how he's going to go to all these little villages. And then in the next paragraph says that he's not going to go to any of those villages and see them again. So I don't understand what the point of bringing it up was. The rest of the book is the old man complaining. Get off my lawn. Nothing's perfect anymore. Everything is trash. There are all these young hippies everywhere who can't keep their pants up. And that's the whole book. It is all complaining. You know, I don't mind a book that says things are not what they used to be. That can be done well. You know, I'm not saying that that can't be done well. I've, his other books do that. He talks a lot about how, like, um, Life and Times of a Thunderbolt Kid. He talks about growing up in Iowa and how his childhood was so different than what it is today. And that was a great book. This one is not that. It is just an old man complaining. <laughs> a lot. He complains that museums are becoming dumbed down. And all they're doing is having great cafes so that people can go and buy stuff. And then he spends most of his time in the cafe buying stuff and talking about the food. I'm just like, dude, then don't go in the cafe. And like, there are sections that just make me scratch my head. He talks about going to McDonald's with his family. I have it printed out if you should want to read it because it is so baffling to me why this made it into the book and it is the editor did not say no. Okay, you ready? Okay, I said decisively to the youth, youthful attendant that when it came to my turn, I'd like five Big Macs, four quarter pounder cheeseburgers, two chocolate milkshakes. At this point, someone stepped up to tell me that one of the children wanted chicken nuggets instead of a, Mac, a Big Mac. Sorry, I resumed. Make that four Big Macs, four quarter pounders, two chocolate milkshakes. At this point, some small person tugged on my sleeves to inform me that he wanted a strawberry milkshake instead of a chocolate milkshake. Right, I said, returning to the youthful attendant. Make that four Big Macs, four quarter pounders, one chocolate milkshake, one strawberry milkshake, and three chicken nuggets. And so it went as I worked my way through from time to time adjusting the group's long and complicated order. When the food came, a young man produced 11 trays with 30 to 40 bags of food on them. What's this? Your order, he replied, and read back my order. 
34 Big Macs, 24 Quarter Pounders, 12 Chocolate Milkshakes. It turned out that and instead of just <laughs> adjusting my order, each time I restarted, he just added. I didn't ask for 12 Quarter Pounders, I said, as four quarter I asked for four Quarter Pounders. Same thing. No, it's not the same thing. You can't be this stupid. Two people waiting behind me in the queue sided with the young attendant. You did ask for all this stuff, one of them said. The duty manager came over and looked at it until said, it says 12 quarter pounders here. It's just sad because all That's of his cool other books it. have been so well written. And they're funny and they're witty and they got, you know, he's making commentary on social life today. But this has none of that. In fact... I had to go look it up because I didn't know what he was talking about. In one spot, he spends two pages railing against this guy. And I don't even know who he's talking about. I looked it up. It's some critiquer that reviewed his last book badly. So he just felt the need to air his opinion that this guy was a total nutter jerk through two and a half pages. Well, I just watched the movie with um, about him played by Robert Redford. Oh, the Appalachian Trail yeah, one? about the Appalachian Trail. And the beginning of the movie puts Bill Bryson in a very sad kind of situation where I think he has like writer's block and he's not happy with his publishers and he's not happy with what he's done. So maybe this, the movie perhaps swallowed you know, this kind of an experience, maybe he was really having a writer's dilemma at the time. I just wish he had some kind soul around him who just looked at this and said, no, no, just don't publish it. Because I, I said, I have read everything else he has done, and I have enjoyed all of it. So, but I was just so disappointed in this book. It is just not like him. It, there's none of his style, none of his wit. This is a very short book, but it's a very dense book. It's Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. I recommend this for anyone who wants to read anything science. He does a great job of breaking it down, so you'll learn things what like uh, a quark is, what some of the major components of physics are. It's very small, like I said. There are only seven lessons, and he gives them very briefly, and he tries to do a really good job of breaking them down. I have listened to it five or six times because there are still sections I'm having trouble with. But I'm a big science. I love to read science books. So this one I thought would be an okay one to bring in so it's not so dense. But I recommend it because it's really good. Like I said, he, he writes it so it's understandable for those who don't have a science background. And he gives a lot of good, a lot of good explanations. So, I mean, you learn about... Because they were talking about gravitational waves that was big in the news. And he talks about what gravitational waves are. So if you've heard it in the news recently, how they found them, this is a good one to kind of look through and say, oh, that's what gravitational waves are. That's why this is a big deal. So I recommend this one. So I recommend all of that. Last one, Girl in the Dark. I totally picked this up because I was like, what the heck? Um, this is all about a young lady who starts to develop... What she thinks is just being tired at work. And as it progresses, um, she knows that as she leaves work, she's more and more drained. And so she goes to the doctor and they go through all this stuff. Well, she starts to develop these weird skin rashes. So her doctors are talking to her. Come to find out that she has become allergic to both artificial and real light. 
to the point where her skin will burn. So they talk about in here how, like, at the beginning, light. light. Okay. She cannot. And this is nonfiction. This is nonfiction. Okay. So, yeah, she can't go anywhere. So she talks about in the beginning of the book, it's like a mission impossible because she's going to go have lunch. And so her boyfriend makes sure to keep all the curtains closed. But you know how sometimes light creeps through them. So it's like her doing the dun dun and she's like moving around to try to avoid because if she gets into this and it's instantaneous, her skin will start to tingle and then burn. It's so severe. So she spends most of her time in a darkened room. She can't watch TV. She can't, you know, nothing. So she talks about, she listens to stuff because she can't turn on a light. So she does, she listens to books and she does Pilates in the dark and that's her day. And it's so heartbreaking, but she does a really good job of talking about her past and then how as this, as the condition progresses how she has to spend more and more time at home so she's trying to find something to do with her time and so she starts taking a piano she's going to teach piano because she used to do that and it's going to get licensed and all that but as it gets worse and worse and worse she can't even do that so she has oh, to spend her time take lessons at midnight yes well and you couldn't even you couldn't turn on the light no. to even look at so those yeah. can't see either no yeah. and I'm like I said I've read it and then I was going back and marking stuff so but she does get better and I I enjoy that she also talks about the mind game she plays to try to keep her mind sharp and the phone calls because there are other people in England that have the same condition so they sit on the phone and they talk a lot because it's kind of her besides her boyfriend and her parents the only real connection to the outside world she has well, the days are so long I know you know I mean she only has a few hours that she can be in the dark mm-hmm yeah, to work with the blind. She couldn't, I mean, she had, couldn't do anything. I just couldn't. I, it was so heart-wrenching to read, but it was really good because it was like, you know, when you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. I'm like, just think about this poor woman. She'd probably give her left arm to do what you don't want to do. So, But I really enjoyed it. They talk a lot about light bulbs. And I was like, light bulbs, seriously. But there's a lot of, like, skin conditions that have an adverse effect right. to artificial lighting. And so in Britain, at least, they're trying to find a good light bulb that most people could be under at some point. So mm -hmm. that's where they're trying. But hers, they never could figure out where it came from or why it died down like it just flared up and then slowly went away but it was just one of those it's probably like an autoimmune and the, there uh -huh. isn't much explanation mm -hmm. for those they yeah. do flare up mm -hmm. and die down. Mm -hmm. so i recommend it it's a cute i mean not cute but it's a small book i really like the way she wrote it <laughs> the only thing is really be aware of the headings because she toggles between times and if you're not paying attention you might get lost for a few pages as what time period is she in and that's all I've got today. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries podcasts on Facebook. Mm -hmm.